I'm in Romans chapter 1 still. We'll be there for several weeks. We're going to pick up at verse 18 in just a minute. But before we do, I, uh, as, as a lot of you know, have had back problems recently. I had back surgery in 2017. December of 17, I started having uh, problems again in June of last year. And so I had, you know, therapy uh, doctor's visits, x-rays, um, MRIs. So I'm back at the surgeon and, you know, he knows I have a problem. I know I have a problem, but we got to, we got to nail it down. What is it? Where is it? So he said, I'm going to do a myelogram. Now that sounded like something that used to come in the mailbox a long time ago, but a myelogram is an old test. I had another doctor tell me that would be like watching the Super Bowl this year on a 13-inch black and white TV. It's old technology. And I don't know if you're familiar with it, but he said, we're going to do it. And so I'm so excited when I get to go to the hospital and do tests. I know all of you celebrate that as well. And so for this one, uh, they put me on a table. I'm, I'm pretty sure that they used to do autopsies on that table, but that's just my opinion. This very comfortable metal slab, and um, now get up here and get comfortable, <laughs> right? You've you've put me in one of these ridiculous robes, and you've put me in this dark room, and, and you you can just lay here till the doctor comes, and don't move, and then they shove a pillow under me. Now I'm just going to tell you, when I'm on my stomach, I got plenty under me already, you know, and they shove that, and I can't breathe, and there I am, heaving, and he's on his way, he'll be right here, and I'm like, if he don't get here soon, he's going to have to do an autopsy, but anyway, finally he comes in, and for this test, it looks at your spine, your disc, your nerves, it's the definitive answer for the neurosurgeon, you know, we're going to go in your spine, I knew when they got in. And then they said, we're going to introduce the die. And boy, when that got in, I really knew it. And I, I can remember just my world closing in around me. And I'm laying there on that metal table, and I'm looking at the nurse saying, I'm leaving you. And I didn't mean I was going to get up and go. I mean, I'm passing out. And I know I'm passing out. And I, but they keep saying, well, move this way. Hold still. Do this. And then, without any warning, the table starts moving up. I'm frantically searching for handles, you know, and, and holding my gown like it mattered at that point. <laughs> but as soon as the table got vertical, my feet touched something. I still don't know what it was. I was cognizant enough to hear the surgeon say, there it is. I see it. It, for him, was the defining moment. That's it. That's where it is. And I tell you that story just not to enjoy the shame of me going through a myelogram and passing out, but to tell you Paul is, is shifting into this mood, this moment, this time, this passage, where he's going to define something for us very clearly once for all. If you've been here since the first week, this is now the fourth week in the book of Romans, you have heard the term gospel, gospel, gospel gospel. It's the good news. It's the story of God loving us and sending his son Jesus to die on the cross for us. But Paul now is going to move into, and he's going to define, he's going to explain, he's going to answer the question once for all, why we even need the gospel. Paul has written and he said, I was set apart for the gospel. I'm serving in the gospel. I'm eager to share the gospel. Last week we saw there's no shame in the gospel. But why do we need the gospel? 
And so from chapter 1, verse 18, all the way to chapter 3, verse 20, Paul is going to establish, nail down, make absolutely clear why we need the gospel. And friend, before you and I get to chapter 3, verse 20, he will have made it clear that the Gentiles, that's you and me, that we need the gospel. All the people in the world who think they're moral and upright, they need the gospel. He's going to make clear that the Jews need the gospel. He's going to make abundantly clear and plain that all of humanity needs the gospel. So why do we need the gospel? Look with me at chapter 1, verse 18. For. Now that word for is a subordinating conjunction. Now that will just bless your heart. But it is a word that explains. It's a word that tells us why. So everything he has said up until this point about the gospel and his ministry and his preaching and the power of the gospel for, this is the why, for the wrath of God is revealed from heaven against all ungodliness and unrighteousness of men who by their unrighteousness suppress the truth. For what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them. For his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power and divine nature, have been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made. So they are without excuse. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him, but they became futile in their thinking and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. The reason why you and I need the gospel is because the wrath of God is being poured out, is being shown, is being displayed, is coming to those of us who sin. Now, I'll just go ahead and give you a heads up. This, this is a weighty passage of Scripture, and we're going to be in here for a few weeks. There's a, there's a lot of stuff to digest. But at the outset, he says that, the wrath of God is revealed. Now, when you hear the word wrath, you would probably think anger. And some people would hear wrath and God and say, those don't go together. But in reality, they do. Now, let me remind you, it is unlike our anger. My anger, perhaps your anger, is much more driven by our fleshly response, our preferences, our wishes, our wants. Ours can be driven by selfishness. However, God's wrath is a result of his perfect holiness. See, God's perfect in his love. He loves us perfectly. God is perfect in his patience, perfect in his justice, perfect in his grace and his mercy. Everything about God is perfect and he's well balanced and he is just right and good. But when there is something contrary to his holiness, then his wrath is also perfect. It's not driven by selfishness. It's not driven by flesh. But it is our sin, yours and mine, 
that's in conflict with God and his love and his holiness and his perfection. So the Bible says his wrath is being revealed. Now it's in the present tense, which means it's ongoing. And some of you might look at this and say, well, how is it that God's wrath is revealed? There's still evil in this world. If his wrath is being revealed, he would have taken care of all that. And this world should be a perfect place by now. And I would just remind you that not only is God's love perfect, but his timing is perfect. And God does not always work on the calendar that we prefer, that we think is best. Donald Gray Barnhouse is an old preacher that some of you may have heard of. And he told the story of a Midwestern town where the Christian farmers who were in church every Sunday were frustrated by the non-Christian farmer whose land was near the church. And they were angry because week after week, this guy would choose to do some of his loud work on Sunday morning. And they'd be sitting in church and they'd hear the tractors. And they'd walk out of the church and there'd just be dust going. And they were mad and they were angry and everybody in town knew it. And the guy who knew it best was the farmer who one week wrote a letter to the little newspaper in that town. And in his letter, he affirmed He did not love, he did not fear, he did not respect God. But in his letter, he would say, by the way, I have the highest yield per acre in the county. And he ended his letter by saying, how do you explain that? And the wise old editor of that newspaper responded back, God does not settle all his accounts in the month of October. It was a reminder that God's schedule is very different than ours. But the reality is the Bible says that God's wrath is being ongoing, being revealed from heaven against all ungodliness is the word. Unrighteousness of men. Now what this is is a sin against God and sins against mankind. Ungodliness refers to a lack of reverence for God. Unrighteousness describes our actions that are carried out because of our ungodly attitudes. By that I mean sin is really when you and I deny God's rightful place in our hearts and our minds and our lives. And we sin against God in our hearts but also with our actions. For example, life is a gift from God. You and I do not create life. We cannot sustain life. Life is a gift from God that most of us in this room are enjoying right now. Most of us. If I do not respect that gift of God, that is an ungodly attitude. But it plays out in unrighteous activity. How? When someone takes life. And so in our culture, we take life before birth. We take life after birth. It is an ungodly attitude that results in an unrighteous activity. And so what Paul says is that God's wrath is being revealed because of that. And by our unrighteousness, he says we suppress the truth. 
So when you suppress the truth, you're hiding that which is true. The word suppress means to hold down, to tackle, to keep down. And so what the Bible says is that you and I need the gospel because of ungodly, unrighteous attitudes and activities. We need the gospel because we've been guilty of suppressing the truth. Now, we, I was trying to think of what does that look like. I'm old enough to remember when President Reagan was shot. And if you YouTube that video, what you will see is immediately people run to where the shooter was and they hold him down. Why? They're trying to suppress his activity. They're holding it down. They're putting all their weight down. These crazy videos come out of people that have to be suppressed on airplanes and they're held down. And that's what the Bible describes when you and I hold down and hide the truth. Because this is the deal. It's the truth that sets us free. But when you and I deny the truth, then it makes it much easier to have an ungodly attitude or an unrighteous activity. And when you and I bury, hold down, suppress the truth, that's when bad things start to happen. I, I saw an ad for a movie coming out. It's called Dark Waters. It looked interesting. I'm not advocating this, but it's a fascinating story. It's a story about a chemical company named DuPont. And the accusation is they knew what they were doing when they poisoned a community. There was a movie that came out last year or the year before. It's called The Devil We Know. And it was all about a chemical company that was pouring poisonous chemicals into a West Virginia community. Listen, when the truth is hidden, bad things happen. When we seek to hide, when we seek to harness, when we hinder the truth, we get into all sorts of problems. Now, the truth that is discussed here in Romans chapter 1 is basic truth. Just the truth of what's good and what's bad, what's true and what's false, what's right and what's wrong. This is not the complete truth of the gospel. Now that becomes clearer when we read further. Go back to verse 19. There the Bible says, for what can be known about God is plain to them. So those who are in sin, those who have this suppression of the truth, which results in ungodly, unrighteous what can be known about God is plain to them because God has shown it to them for his invisible attributes, namely his eternal power, divine nature. They've been clearly perceived ever since the creation of the world in the things that have been made, so they're without excuse. Now, what the Bible says here is that you and I can know a great deal about God. What can be known about God is plain. The Bible says it's clearly known. It means to be widely known, to be evident. It doesn't need a lot of explanation. And God has shown himself through invisible attributes. Isn't that interesting to show something through invisible attributes? His eternal power, his divine nature. It has been clearly perceived, according to the Bible, from creation. So it means that you and I can see this. It's easy to see. It's easy to discern. Our great problem in this day... We have this internal notion of the eternal, but we want to explain away. We, we can no longer accept things by faith. But what happens? Creation shouts that there is a creator. Creation shouts that it didn't just happen. 
When you begin to investigate the size of our world, when you begin to look at all the science behind not just our bodies, but the the animals, the birds, the creeping things, friends, that doesn't just happen. It clearly reveals a creator. And that is from the most majestic of mountains to the minutest of molecules. Creation declares the glory of God. I've lately... I'm a nerd most times, but lately I've been a space nerd with all the 50th anniversary of the Apollo stuff. And I came across a quote from an astrophysicist. Friend, I don't even know what that is. If you are one, see me later and explain it to me. That's how dense I am. But Robert Jastro was an astrophysicist. He's now deceased. But he was the founding director of NASA's Goddard Space Uh, Goddard Institute for Space Studies. And it's fascinating. I'm going to read you directly a quote. This man was not a Christian. This man was not a believer. This man did not go to the Bible for his guidance in life. And listen to what he says about creation. Quote, Now we see how the astronomical evidence supports the biblical view of the origin of the world. This is a non-Christian. The essential elements in the astronomical and biblical accounts of Genesis are the same. Consider the enormousness of the problem. So he says, they're the same, but here's the problem. Science has proved that the universe exploded into being at a certain moment. It asks what cause produced this effect. Who or what put the matter and energy in the universe? And he says, and I quote, science cannot answer these questions. For the scientist who has lived by his faith in the power of reason, the story ends like a bad dream. He has scaled the mountains of ignorance. He is about to conquer the highest peak. And he pulls himself over the final rock. He's greeted by a band of theologians who've been there for centuries. It's the church who's been declaring the glory of God in creation. And I appreciate the words of this gentleman who does not identify as a Christian acknowledging that. The Bible says that, in fact, things are so clear in this world that there is a God, that there is a creator, that we are without excuse. Now hear me, this is not the teaching of universalism. This is not declaring that everybody is saved, will be saved, going to be saved. This does mean, though, that all of humanity can observe God in some way. The goodness of God, the glory of God, the creativity of God is observable. And we're without excuse. Have you had to make an excuse lately? I wrote some text to guests who were here last Sunday. I was doing really well till I got the names of their kids wrong. And, and, and you may, I, I don't know if you're back because I offended you in my text, but I, I, I realized what the mistake was and, and I had just gotten names crossed. I was sitting in my computer. And so I, I told them, I said, here's my excuse. I got in a hurry. I got names and I typed it wrong and I'm sorry. That's my excuse. Normally when we do something wrong, you know, there's a reason we can explain it. Paul says, for those in this situation, there's no excuse. Look at verse 21. For although they knew God, they did not honor him as God or give thanks to him. 
But they became futile in their thinking, and their foolish hearts were darkened. Claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory of the immortal God for images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Although they knew God. And it's just this series of things they did not do. They did not honor God. The word is doxo, from doxology, or doxology comes from doxo. So when you and I sing the doxology, we're singing praise and glory and we're honoring God. There was no gratitude. They, they, they just didn't even say thank you. Does that not frustrate you when people don't say thank you and they should? Now, this is me being transparent. I still hold the door for people. You know how often people just walk through and don't say thank you? I don't always act like I should. I'll say, you're welcome. <laughs> and I actually start saying, you better be careful. They may go to Gillum. I said, not anymore. I got the names of their kids wrong in my text. I, you know, I'm offending people left and right. But I mean, how hard is it to just say Thank you. And so on a cosmic scale, we see all that God has done. We, we, we do not glorify him and we are not grateful. And then he says they've become futile in their thinking. It means they've been empty in their thinking. They, they've been given over to empty thoughts, worthless thoughts, thoughts that don't amount to anything. And then he says their foolish hearts were darkened. The word means they no longer had discernment. Now, friends, you know what discernment is. You, you want to use discernment when you're going to do something. If you're going to buy something on Amazon, you read the reviews. You're going to try a new restaurant, we read the reviews. We're going to take a trip, we're going to stay here, read the reviews. We, why? We want to have discernment in all these things that won't amount, uh, amount to anything in eternity. But the Bible is describing this dissension away from God. And so he says that not only no honor, no gratitude, they're futile in their thinking. And he says their hearts were darkened. Friend, I want to tell you, the heart always matters. Proverbs chapter 4 verse 23 says, guard your heart, for from it flow the springs of life. Listen, you, you can know where you are in life based on your heart. Your heart will not lie. And so he says their heart has become darkened. And they claim to be wise. Who made that assessment? They did. We're so wise. And he says, but claiming to be wise, they became fools. Now, it, it, it gets interesting. I'm just going to say again, this is a fascinating passage. It's going to go for verses and verses and verses. We're going to get into some things in the next few weeks. I'm just warning you. Beware. I, you need to prayerfully consider what age kids you bring in here. We're going to be on this topic for quite some time. But here's what the Bible says. They did something. They exchanged. Now, I don't know if you've exchanged things lately. If you go to the store across the street and you had the wrong size, the wrong color, or something that didn't work, you go in and you can what? Exchange it. You, you can exchange it for something that is the same or equal value. What Paul is describing is like we take something in we paid $100 for and said, just keep it. Give me a nickel. I mean, that's foolish. We wouldn't think of doing that. And so now he, he really gets into the crux of this dissension. He says that claiming to be wise, they became fools and exchanged the glory, the glory of the immortal God for the images resembling mortal man and birds and animals and creeping things. Now, friend, I'm going to tell you, we're going to get further into God's Word and see what we have exchanged the glory of God for. And it's troubling and it's heavy, and I'm just giving you that heads up. 
But he says, we exchange the glory of the immortal God. You know, when you enjoy a sunrise, and you say, man, that's beautiful. You take a picture of sunset, man, that's beautiful. That's glorying in God. That, that is attributing to him the glory that he is due. He is immortal. It means he doesn't die. It means there's no decay. But Paul says we claim to be wise, but we become foolish. He's describing this exchange, this transaction. And in sin, what you and I do is we exchange the rightful glory of the immortal God for things that resemble mortal man, animal, a bird, animal, or creeping things. What he's describing is idolatry. Now, idolatry is when you and I worship things that are not God. Could be things, could be people, but it's an, it, it is not an attempt to worship God. It is an explanation of how far we've come from God. In the Old Testament, when the children of Israel were in the wilderness and they fashioned for themselves a golden calf, they didn't do that because they were worshiping God. They did that because they're getting further and further away from God. And you say, well, you know, what does it look like? I'm going to tell you what I think it looks like. This was on Twitter on September 17th. And I, this is not made up. I did not create this. I found this. This is not Babylon B. So this is not fake news. Ooh, that didn't go over. <laughs> Look at the Twitter, Union Seminary. Now, if you're not familiar with seminaries, that's where preachers go to study. It's where theologians go to study. Union Seminary is in New York, and there was a day when it was a well-respected theological school. I can affirm for you today that is no longer the case. Because on September the 17th, this tweet went out at 11.43 a.m. today in chapel. Do y'all know what seminarians usually do in chapel? Anybody want to guess? Worship. Today in chapel, their time of worship, we confessed. I confessed. What did they do? We confessed to plants. Now, friend, I'm telling you, that is... It's not laughable, it's tragic. We confess to plants. I have told some plants, I'm sorry I killed you, I'm sorry I didn't love you like I should, but I didn't confess to them. Together we held our grief, joy, regret, hope. Now look, hope in plants. Guilt and sorrow in prayer, offering them to the beings who sustain us, but whose gift we too often fail to honor. What do you confess to the plants in your life? Now, friend, I'm just going to be very honest with you. That, to me, is unbelievable. Seminary students claiming to study the Bible got together in chapel and confessed to plant. There's not a plant alive that can sustain me. There's not a plan on this earth that's supposed to sustain me. And so here we are. This is real life. Now, I'm just going to tell you, I believe that to be pagan. I believe it to be idolatrous. And so this is happening. You say, well, Jamie, look, I'm not a pagan. What's that got to do with me? If you and I aren't careful, we can all turn away from the truth. 
And some people say, well, it's you narrow-minded preachers. I'm telling you, you need to, you, you, you need to, you need to be broad in your thinking. I'm telling you, some folks have gotten so broad in their thinking, their brains have fallen out. And it's no longer common sense. And so this is what happens when the truth is suppressed. Guess what is happening at that seminary? Their enrollment is going down. <laughs> Shock of shocks. Listen, when you suppress the truth, numbers go down. People realize how dishonest this is, how fake this is, how false this is. And so this is what Paul is talking about. The risk of idolatry. They become futile in their thinking. Listen, we as Christians need to be those who study the most. But we had better approach our studies with a sure foundation on who is King of kings and Lord of lords. And where his truth is found. I, I don't know what makes you angry. I've already told you one. When I open the door for somebody and they don't say thank you. I guess that. But I begin to think in my heart, what makes me angry? And there's a couple of things that came to my mind. Bad drivers make me angry. And if that's you, you need to repent. <laughs> Everybody in my family knows, though they do not acknowledge, I'm the best driver in the family. But you know, you just kind of want, you, you wish you could be transported from your car to that car. And say, this is how you do it. The left lane is for passing. The light turned green. If that was you, I was behind the other night at that traffic light. I repent for the thoughts I had. Put your phone down. Let me go. I got a life to live. That makes me angry. Why? Selfish. Prideful, thinking I can do it better. Incompetence. You know, if you take a job, bless the Lord, <laughs> you ought to be able to do that job. Because when I show up, what's happened? <laughs> You forgot all your training. And I, sometimes I just want to say, get out of the way. I can do it better. I don't care what it is. Just do your job. You know, why? Selfish, prideful, impatient. The things that make me mad tend to come from the flesh, from a sinful attitude in my heart. Do you know what makes God mad? you know what brings about God's wrath? Ungodliness, unrighteousness, suppression of his truth. Choosing not to honor him, becoming futile in our thinking, claiming to be wise yet absolutely foolish, exchanging the glory that is his for images that resemble something else. So what's the remedy to our sin? If you thought just a little bit, you'd know the gospel, the good news. That our Heavenly Father loves us, forgives us, will restore us. It's a stretch for some of you to believe, but my kids have frustrated me before. I know that's a stretch for some of you to believe, but if you've had children, about 30 seconds. <laughs> and I thought about that. You know, there were times I just wanted to pinch their sweet little heads off. And you know what always worked? When they said, I'm sorry, Dad. I love you. Would you forgive me? And what do I do? Good night, my heart, man. Yes, baby. <laughs> On a much bigger scale, our remedy is to say to our Heavenly Father, I'm sorry. Would you forgive me? And He embraces us in love and sets us back on the right path. The truth 
the gospel is our only remedy. Would you pray? Father, today we're thankful for your love, your grace, your mercy, and acknowledge we are in desperate need of all. Your grace, all your mercy, all your love. It is an ugly reality that sin causes us to move further and further and further away from you. But it is a glorious reality that your grace brings us back. Your mercy restores us. Your love knows no end. And so I pray for the one that would listen to this message, whatever means, here, online, later in a podcast, however. Lord, would you just help us to search our hearts and to understand that there is the risk that in our sin, we could move further and further away from you. We could be guilty of ungodly, unrighteous attitudes and actions. We could be futile in our thinking. We could be on that slippery slope where we say we're so wise, yet we've become fools. God forbid it. So make us painfully aware. Get that diagnosis, sin, make it clear to us. And Lord, the solution is your glorious gospel, which we celebrate and thank you for. In Jesus' name, amen.